The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to The Living Church Podcast. I don't usually start episodes this way, but thank you for listening. Just thank you for listening to this podcast. When I go to conferences or I'm connecting with friends or I'm checking my emails, I love hearing how this show is entertaining you. I hear that it's keeping you company while you're taking runs or going shopping or stuck in traffic or when you're on the couch with COVID. And it is encouraging to me that it's encouraging to you to be learning more about the body of Christ and about your place of service in it. And that's also so much of what we're about at The Living Church. And you'll only find more of this kind of conversation, the camaraderie, even a few hot takes on our blog, Covenant, livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I would highly recommend you visit if you have not yet. Hot off the press at Covenant right now, we've got an essay about church finance, about life after the Dobbs decision, and a review of Dr. Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Yes, quite a variety there. Livingchurch.org forward slash covenant, and I'll also stick a link in the show notes for you. Now, speaking of reviews, we are here to talk about and riff off of a pretty recent show on Hulu, Under the Banner of Heaven. Have you seen it? It's a show about religion in America, about Mormonism, and about what happens when faith conflicts with ugly facts. And if you have not seen it, spoilers abound ahead, so watch out. Also, the show involves a woman and her child being killed, and we don't get detailed in our discussion about this, but just be aware as you listen that the topic will come up. Under the Banner of Heaven is a true crime series based on a book about the murder of a young Mormon woman, Brenda Lafferty, played by Daisy Edgar Jones and her young daughter, and the subsequent investigation of that murder. The show's creator is an ex-Mormon, Dustin Lance Black, and he invents an additional character, a police detective, Jeb Pyrie, who is also a Mormon, played by Andrew Garfield. And so Jeb's investigation of this case starts interacting with his faith, and as it does, it brings up larger questions about religious faith and faithfulness as it faces evil, hypocrisy, and ugly, ugly truths. Can it survive? How does media tend to get this kind of dynamic right and bring up the right kinds of questions? And what does media often miss about religious faith and its struggles? Today, we welcome Dr. Patrick Q. Mason. I had a ball speaking with him. Patrick holds the Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University. He's the author of several books, including Mormonism and Violence, The Battles of Zion, and The Mormon Menace, Violence and Anti-Mormonism in the Postbellum South, and Proclaim Peace, The Restoration's Answer to an Age of Conflict. He was a Fulbright Scholar and is a past president of the Mormon History Association, and Patrick is frequently consulted by the media on stories related to Mormon culture and history because he's great at it, and he is himself a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, put on your sunglasses and your sunblock because we are headed to Utah and into the heart of some tough questions about what it means to be a person of faith, not just as a Mormon in the 1980s, but as a Christian in our world today. We hope you enjoy the conversation.
I live in Logan, Utah, which is up in the very top northeastern corner of Utah, really close to the Idaho border. Oh, I'm having a hard time not feeling jealous of you right now. So if you yeah. live in a place as as beautiful as Utah, where do you go on vacation? Do you go to Las Vegas? Or are you like, I miss ugly places where? <laughs> right. No, I'm, I'm not a Vegas guy. A lot of people do because uh, you can do things in Vegas that you can't do in Utah. Uh -oh. um, but uh, uh, or anywhere else for that matter. But uh, no, we we go uh, we like going to the you know, to the coast, you know, so, so to find like an ocean or something like that. I love the Pacific Northwest or oh, we, used, we used to live in Southern California. So lots of people go to California so they can like go see the ocean. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I guess you yeah. miss water occasionally out there. Okay. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. And we are here to talk about and riff off of a pretty recent show on Hulu under the banner of heaven. I am always interested in how television and film portray religious faith. And a lot of our listeners are uh, church leaders of some kind or Christians in leadership of some kind or another. And I don't want to be perfectionist about how media portrays faith because religion is hard to get right. Is it not? Like it's, it's, Very. it's yeah. a little complicated and, and I love artists, a great admiration for what they do. So I never want to denigrate the art and craft of storytelling, which is also complex and involves obviously artistic license, but I am always looking for the complexity of the truth of what it means to believe in God and to try to serve him in the exigencies of your life and of the culture that you're a part of in the times that you're in, how do people do that? And how do they do it with varying levels of maturity and varying levels of faith? Because I think that Patrick can agree with me that we saw a few tropes here played <laughs> out in under the banner of heaven, not just about Mormons, certainly about Mormons. Um, but also as a person of faith myself, there were moments when I thought, Hmm, that's interesting. I've seen that before. <laughs> but then I also saw some helpful complexity and some accuracy that I think we can mine as well. So we start with Jeb, the detective, and we see his family. And Jeb is, is a great guy. He's a good Mormon. He's a stable guy. He's mature. He's a good husband. He's a good father. And we see this super precious scene of him at prayer time with his family, and they're all kneeling around the bed, which looked familiar to me growing up as a Christian. And then he goes to work uh, and we see his partner and his friend, Bill Taba, who is also an officer played by Gil Birmingham. And he's interesting because he's an ex-Catholic. He's our skeptic. Uh, he's Native American, also a really good man, kind of cranky. Uh, he's all about the mm -hmm. truth. So, you know, he doesn't go for this religion thing because he's all about the truth. And we dive with them into this, uh, the gruesome murder case and we immediately encounter, first of all, Alan Lafferty, the husband of Brenda, who was killed. And uh, where does it where does it go from there that you recall? Yeah, so so Alan is uh, is picked up by the officers, you know, because obviously he's uh, he's a suspect uh, for, for the crime. And, and we have to say that many, um, many aspects of the story are fictionalized. 
uh, including some of the names uh, right. of, of people. As you said, uh, Detective Pyrie is an entirely, the, the, the two detectives are entirely fictional. So Alan is picked up uh, as a suspect and that they're holding him. And of course, they think he's the one who did it. And, and that's a pretty standard thing, like, you know, the, uh, you know, the abusive husband or, or, or something like that. And and as they are, are really pushing him and as they're trying to, to, to figure out what, what went on, he starts talking about religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and he basically says, and this is within like the first few minutes of, of the show, Alan tells Jeb Pyrie, this, you know, faithful Mormon, uh, detective, he says, if, if, if you, you don't think you don't want to, uh, look into this in any further, right? I, th- this may take you into places where, where you don't want to go. And he has this, this line that becomes a kind of tagline for the show and an, and an overarching theme. He, he says that this religion, Mormonism in particular, he says this religion breeds dangerous men. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so then, as, as you said, uh, in, uh, in talking about the murder, uh, and so we start to learn about the Lafferty family and so forth, but then there are also these flashbacks to early Mormon history and to the development of Mormon fundamentalism. But it, it, it's all kind of interwoven, both this, the story of the investigation that, that begins to that, that very quickly zeroes in on, on the Lafferty uh, mm-hmm. uh, the family and, and especially his brothers and, um, and, and their faith, their religion. Yeah, it becomes an investigation in at least three senses. It's the investigation of this murder case. It's an investigation of Mormon history. Yeah. And it becomes also an investigation of faith, particularly of, I think, front and center, we'd say, of Jeb's faith. Yeah. Um, but I would argue also an investigation of the faith of others, not all of whom come out badly. Uh, in the end, but yeah, hold, I, hold on just one minute. I've sure. got, I'm, I'm at home alone with my kids and I yes, think they're please. knocking at the door. Just one sec. Yeah. What's up? I'm sorry about that. My That's wife's right. gone. So it's the, the joys of being at home alone with kids. So. Are your, are your little ones okay? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're fine. They, of course they were just arguing about what TV show to watch. Yes. Yeah. They're not watching under the banner of heaven. Dad, can, can we watch you under that. the banner of heaven? <laughs> I'd like to also touch on a few other things that become important in the story and, and probably to our discussion today. And the, the quote, uh, this religion breeds dangerous men or this and the attitude of don't you don't want to go behind the door and see what's back there. You don't really you don't really want the truth. You don't really want to see you know what's back there. And some of the things that Alan Lafferty, the character of Alan Lafferty is referring to are things that have, as you mentioned, his his family, the Lafferty family, his brothers, they have a whole slew of brothers who are all adults. And and then to some extent, the sisters-in-law as well. And then, of course, Brenda gets pulled into this trajectory are becoming increasingly radicalized as fundamentalists. Right. And the things that they're getting drawn into are doctrines that the church today and we will i'm sure get into did you know what was going on in the 80s would say oh well, is this we really we really don't this is not really what this means or this is we don't do this anymore or maybe we never did depends on what it is right. um or maybe only the people on the fringe ever thought this so one of these is of course polygamy which wasn't always on the fringe but no, it was central to, to the faith no yeah, doubt about yeah, it. yeah absolutely 
Uh, and then racism is another one. Um, if you're a person of color, you know, you can't be in leadership. And so they, we see these very actually white nationalist uh, attitudes and racist attitudes. And then this obscure, really super obscure doctrine, quote unquote, of blood atonement. Um, can you tell everybody a little bit about what that is and, and why that that's important in the story? Yeah, and 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 you've highlighted three actually of of the really important aspects of Mormon fundamentalism. The official, the the, the, the kind of mainstream Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints gave up polygamy in 1890 um, after practicing it for several decades, and it took a little longer to really phase out. But but then in the early 20th century, there there arose a group of what became known as Mormon fundamentalists who said we've got to hold on to the fundamentals of the faith, and for right. them. That meant these these distinctive teachings of 19th century leaders, uh, including Brigham Young and and his successor John Taylor. So blood atonement, I think, let's just say it's uh, not one of the highlights in mm. Mormon uh, in the history of Mormon teaching. <laughs> it's quite chilling, actually. <laughs> yeah, it it is chilling, and it's it's false teaching. Mm. Uh, we should just get that out of the way. But it was taught by Brigham Young and other leaders of the church in the mid 19th century. There there's a uh, passing reference to it by Joseph Smith, um, based on the the historical documents we have, but uh, so it was it was not really uh, taught by him in any kind of uh, significant or or public way. It's similar to the way that many people talk about capital punishment, right? I mean, you, hmm. essentially, you got to pay pay for your sins. It's a mm-hmm. it's a kind of justice. Well, Brigham Young uh, developed that idea and went further with it, and he said there are some sins that are so egregious, so heinous, that the blood of Jesus is not sufficient, Wow! Uh, that the blood of Jesus does not cover for them, does not fully atone for them. And so a person must uh, shed their own blood in order to atone for those sins. And it was was taught publicly and repeatedly uh, by Brigham Young and other leaders of the church, especially in the 1850s. There's this period of sort of intense religiosity called the Mormon Reformation in 1857 and 1858. And this is bad teaching. <laughs> this, this goes against all of Christianity. The good news is, so the bad news is that they taught it. The good news is that seemingly nobody believed it. Oh, um, uh, so we have no, you know, sort of direct and um, a strongly documented examples where people were killed or killed themselves uh, in uh, because of blood atonement. Even while Brigham Young was teaching this, it seems like members of the church basically shrugged their shoulders and said, there goes Brigham again. You know, he said a lot of things. Um, but, but it's part of the historical record. This is the thing. And, and so this bringing it back to the show, it's part of the historical record. It's part of this, this, this period of sort of intense religiosity. It is connected to a kind of nationalism, a kind of Mormon nationalism, Mm -hmm. um, as they're trying to establish their own territory in in Utah in the 1850s. And so the fundamentalists who are trying to recover 19th century Mormonism, this kind of golden age for them, they they sweep up blood atonement along with it. And, And certainly that infects the thinking of the Lafferty brothers. Yeah, yeah. And we watch them as they're embracing this, which is... Part of the part of the complexity that I appreciated, because just even the word fundamentalist has this seed of intense truth, which is that there are fundamentals of the faith. And to be a radical person of faith 
means to be going always to the roots of of what it is that God has done and returning to that revelation and being true to it. And so uh, it just, but it's obvious when it gets messed up. Eventually, they're all in. And this is what happens with um, the Lafferty family. So we see this sort of maybe even exaggerated, maybe not. They're slipping further and further from sanity. Um, the the women are more and more enslaved in their own homes. Mental health declines. Um, their beards get longer and longer. <laughs> they move into the country into this rickety old cabin. And then we also see in the flashbacks the Mormon history getting darker and darker. We see the the breakdown of the marital harmony. Uh, when uh, polygamy gets introduced as a doctrine. And then we see also Jeb's faith showing cracks as he is encountering um, this this darkness until it all comes to a head. And then Jeb has a moment that expresses something really central, this question that's really central to the show, I think, Patrick, and that is, how can I be a devout person? How could I be a true believer and also love the truth? and the facts and be a person of integrity. These things don't seem to go hand in hand. There's a, a heavy dose of anti-government oh, yeah. uh, uh, elements too. And actually th- this is one thing that that uh, arguably the, the actual brothers, in some ways they were more driven by anti-government feeling. We, we certainly get a sense of that in mm-hmm. the show, but it leans heavily into religion. Mm-hmm. And that is the grammar and vocabulary that they use, especially when they're doing this violence. But their sort of descent and their entrance into Mormon fundamentalism is actually largely through anti-government, anti-tax uh, uh, sentiments. Mm-hmm. And you're not quite sure how. It's this sense of of liberty gone awry, okay, yeah. but liberty ill-defined, which we deal with in America yeah. over and over and over and over again. It comes up in different forms. It's It was interesting, too, for me to see this deep conflict and struggle that they were having, this deep antagonism toward, toward the government, and then maybe just y- using polygamy, racism, the blood atonement, using those as ways of getting what they wanted rather than really wanting to be more faithful. But it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. It's just that stuff gets all mixed up and so current and so relevant. So current. Exactly. So even though it happens in the 1980s with flashbacks to the 1830s and 40s and 50s, we're really talking about the 2020s. Absolutely. uh, Like what is faith? What is fundamentalism? How does it interact with your ability to be a citizen in a place? Things like that. Exactly. And so, um, you know, the, the, the tension, as, as you suggested, between sort of um, holding on to religious faith and religious tradition, but seeking truth in a kind of unflinching way and going wherever it takes you. The, the, those are really important themes, the themes of religion and violence, the, the way that uh, religious, religious zeal can lead people into some really dark places. Those are really important themes. And, and Dustin Lance Black, who created the, the show, um, has said he's, he wanted the show to be a conversation starter. He, he wanted it to open up conversations for people to talk about hard things. So first, what, what can we appreciate about the show artistically, theologically? Um, could you start us into things that had some historical or cultural accuracy? So the, the, the fact that Joseph Smith introduced polygamy uh, that it was controversial at, even at the time, that it um, was just uh, heartbreaking for his for his first wife, his legal wife Emma Smith, 
it, it depicts um, a moment in early Mormon history called the Hans Mill Massacre, where a number of Mormon men and, and boys and, and, and women were attacked by a mob in Missouri in 1838. And that's a real tragic, horrific instance. And, and the way that that plays into a kind of Mormon persecution complex that has existed ever since, that's real. The 1857 Mountain Meadows Massacre, where Mormons interned, this is in Utah, where, where Mormons killed in cold blood 120 men, women, and children who were migrating to, to California. That is real. It's, it's easily the worst day in Mormon history, one of the worst massacres in American history. In some ways, if, if you only watch this, if this is all you knew about Mormonism, you might think like every other day they're either killing or being killed. Right. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a selective rendering of history, but those dark moments are real. And how often do um, did Mormons in the 80s say Heavenly Father in a sentence? My joke was I had a little joke, which was, Lord, shall we say Heavenly Father seven times in a sentence? Nay, I tell you, you shall say it 70 times, seven times. So right. that's something if you've seen the show, Certainly. maybe you're laughing. Certainly Mormons talk about God as Heavenly Father, but not to the extent. It, it is laughable. I had a friend say, uh, who's not Mormon, who said he, he started making a drinking game out of it. Um, <laughs> but, but he said it just got really unhealthy really fast. For, for me, it was like it, there were many instances where it got it right. Mm -hmm. And then it went one step further. I was like, oh, if okay. you would have just stopped right there, you, you would have captured it perfectly. I think that a lot of people, I was watching it and I felt similarly, as I said, I saw in the family prayer time, I remember prayer times, my father is leading. Yeah. I grew up with a doctrine of, of the, you know, the man having the priesthood of the home. And so that was language that I was familiar with, at, even as a non-Mormon. And the we prayed around the couch, not the okay, bed. We prayed right, around the couch. Right. Um, but the feeling of being in your jammies and on your knees on the carpet in the 80s and, and all this. And uh, yeah. the little placards of little Christian sayings around the home. That that They totally nailed that. And yeah. the closeness uh, of the community, the way that you can build such tight-knit. Communities of faith can be so tight-knit and can be so loving and so ready to go to bat for the other people um, that are in their community. I thought that they got that, in my perspective, I thought they got that pretty spot on. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think, um, again, I, I think sometimes that they, they went just a half step too far and, and, and there was an even ominous sensibility even about mm -hmm. these tight-knit communities. And, and that is true. I mean, these, these tight-knit communities then can squash conversation or squash dissent. And also there was in the 80s, some culture wars were going on in yeah. Christianity more broadly, particularly evangelical Christianity. The Christian music industry became a thing where you could only listen to quote unquote Christian music. Right. Uh, so this, this is, some of this was familiar uh, to me as well. And also some of the small town Christianity, some of the towns I lived in, in the, in the Midwest. Yeah, um, a sense of like danger outside, mm -hmm. right? The, the, yeah. the world, quote unquote, and 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 we don't want to. We we, we need to close ranks and yeah. and and, and support and we each don't other. Support each other and not show any of our dirty laundry to the outside world because they're out to get us. And we also want to protect the faith of the people who are inside, so that yep. they don't have premature or unnecessary doubts. Yep. And we also want to protect our reputation for people who might be looking from the outside in, it's fear-based, but there's yeah. again, a seed of, of truth in it, which is that 
we want to take care of each other and we want to preserve the faith and we want to be people of good faith. Yeah, the the, the place where um, it didn't work for me was um, every depiction of a church leader, uh, whether it be a bishop or what we call a stake president or a general authority. I thought these depictions, I mean, these were like dark, ominous, like controlling, uh, highly patriarchal figures, uh, very dour, uh, lots of uh, implicit threats, you know, even while they said it with a smile. There's something to that. I mean, we, we, we know that this is the way that oftentimes religious authority works. Um, I thought the show played that hand a little too um, too heavy, but uh, but I under, I understood what it's doing. I, I I just thought it was a little ham-fisted. You know, really ominous. I remember particularly the scene where Brenda goes for prayer. Um, this is really yeah. shortly before she gets killed. She knows something's wrong, and she's brave enough and bold enough, and I would argue also empowered by her faith in God right. to go to straight to the leaders and skip over all the men in her family who she's supposedly supposed to be accountable to, but she knows they've just gone crackers. So she goes to the very highest authorities and says, help me, help my family. I want them to be redeemed, but we also need justice here because this is a dangerous situation. And they put their hands on her head and they start to speak words of scripture over her and and sort of prophetic words over her, which if done a certain way, I recognized as a Pentecostal, as growing up Pentecostal, the kind of, you know, daughter of Zion, you know, we bless you in the name of, you know, and I, that was powerful to me and I wanted to be moved. But again, the music in the background is yep. ominous. And then you see their hands kind of pressing down on her head and there all these men standing. And I believe she's kneeling and it's like also like vaguely sexual. Like it just doesn't, it's not healthy. It's not a healthy situation. It yeah. And obvious. to be fair, you know, Mormonism is and has been a patriarchal religion. It's an all male priesthood, right? So all of sure. the issues that come along with that and no doubt uh, the experience of many women going to male priesthood leaders, especially to share, you know, intimate things like, you know, their merit problems in their marriage and things oh, yeah. like that. They've not always <clears throat> been listened they, to. They've not always been heard. Uh, you know, so the, um, so I have no, and, and I've talked with, with women who say, no, that's actually kind of how it felt. So I want to honor that. And I want to leave space for, and, and I think that's what the show is trying to depict, but there's, you know, there's always another side of the story too. It's hard to do on screen. It's really hard to, to, to capture all of that complexity. We are thrilled to announce at The Living Church the release of the first two volumes under our brand new publishing imprint, Living Church Books. The books are God Wills Fellowship, Lambeth Conference 1920, and the Ecumenical Vocation of Anglicanism, and When Churches in Communion Disagree. Ian Markham, the Dean of Virginia Theological Seminary, says this remarkable collection of essays brings wisdom, insight, and careful analysis to the complexities of living with disagreement, an important book that has the potential to change the contours of the debate. What is this communion that we're in? What is its calling into the future? Please join us in that conversation. You can find both volumes in paperback on Amazon or click the link in the show notes today.
So what do you think that people would say, you know, if this was here, this would really more capture my experience as a person of faith? Yeah, I, th- I think um, for myself and lots of other people I've, I've talked to, they just want a few scenes where religion is life-giving and life-affirming uh, and joyous right. without the dark undertones, right. with, without the kind of ominous music that, co- that comes in um, at, at the end. And, and I actually think that, uh, again, as a viewer, and, and I'm not a filmmaker, I'm not a director, so take this with a grain of salt, I think in some ways that would have made the the show even more effective because it would draw us a, a stronger contrast. It, um, you know, there's for for me one of the problems with the Lafferty's is is there's not that much of a descent into madness because because if 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 the premise is that the religion is rotten at its core, all they're doing is just living out the kind of logical end of mm-hmm. this. Right. Um, and I think it's more compelling if it is a kind of descent into bandas, if there's a real descent, if if there was something that, that that was beautiful and good and life affirming that then they turned their back on. And also that that even very deeply religious people, they can, in fact, have conversations where they're not talking about God. You know, sometimes you just talk about the football game or sometimes you just talk about, you know, what's for dinner, being able to depict deeply religious people also just as people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are, but are there moments in this show that approach that for you? Yeah, I think so. And I think they're mostly captured around Brenda and, yeah. and her family, the, the, the right family, which is her maiden name. Uh, it's the, they are the one truly kind of healthy, more uh, uh, Mormon family. And, and, and they're the ones, um, in, in those scenes, I was like, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I remember Mormonism looking and feeling and sounding like in, in the 1980s. There was a moment that, uh, so a couple things there with the Wright family, it, it occurred to me. So Brenda, for people who haven't seen the show, by the end, we see almost this contrast between Brenda and Jeb. So Jeb, the detective is on this journey as his faith starts breaking down until by the end, he's looking at this beautiful vista with his mother, and his mother says, um, ah, Jeb, what a gift from God, what a miracle. And he kind of, you know, looks at her, tears in his eyes, and he says, well, mom, maybe it's miracle enough that we're just here together. You know, he kind of, he's already like post-religious, I'm not right, sure how. Right, it, ha- right. it just happened really fast. They, spent, yeah, they right, really sped right. it up. Um, but then against that we have Brenda and even have this little tiny mini scene where we see them both in the temple and, and he's got this kind of sad look on his face, you know, that shows that his faith is declining or breaking apart. And then we see Brenda. I don't remember. She's all in white at the end. At this point in the narrative, she's already died. Maybe you could argue been, been martyred in a way. And she is radiant. And she dies with her faith fully intact and, in fact, strengthened. And her faith shines through the whole thing. She's still obedient to her elders. She still is as respectful as she possibly can be and, and, and trying to redeem her husband and, you know, only breaks away from him in, in extremists. 
and she prays with her sisters-in-law. She, she, she suggests, let's pray, you know, share with me your doubts. You've got to hold on to faith. You know, let's talk to our leaders about this. Let's write them a letter. So even the rebellion that she does is on the track of her faith and um, in line with her trust in God and the goodness of God and the providence of God. And so when I thought, well, why is it that Brenda was shaped well and these other characters seem to, you know, uh, not doing so well. And you look at their families of origin, and we we all know families of origin don't guarantee outcomes of any kind. There's always the X factor of just being an individual and interacting with life in specific ways. But Brenda has this very loving family of origin that, um, in a sense, trains her up in the way she should go. So she is cared for. She has stability. Her family have a sense of how to live their faith in the public sphere. Her, they're not manipulative or controlling. They, they show up when her marriage is going bad. Yes. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And they also notice that something's kind of funky with the family that she wants to marry into. Yeah. And they try to, you know, talk her out of it. And they're not perfect. I saw a few moments no. with, with Bishop yeah. Wright that I thought, hmm, yeah. even good guys can be a little manipulative. Like he tries to yeah. get his son-in-law to eat a chocolate and listen to pop music and loosen up, son. I was just like, just leave, leave Alan alone. That poor kid, his, his conscience is already, know. you know, macerated enough. Like, leave him alone. So, you know, they're not perfect. But um, I, I was thinking a little bit about how families of origin can really affect our ability to live out a faith in a way that is uh, life-giving, you know, oftentimes we we think about religion just in terms of congregational life, but you know the you know the lion's share of hours that we spend are not at church. Uh, they they are in the home uh, and 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 in public life. And so, absolutely, the the way that that families and home cultures shape people's religiosity. So so you you might even get Lafferty's and Wrights going to church together. So they they may share a pew together, but at home. The, the way that that religion is playing out is in, in completely different ways. It's good. You know, it's, it, and with Brenda, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I don't know um, what to make of her, uh, her persistent religiosity. And you're right. She, she's, she's deeply religious right to the end. And, and that almost is almost like too good to be true. You think? I no. for, for me, it's a question of like, what are the, what do the filmmakers want to make of that? Ah. Um, so is it a heroic faith, right? Um, and she actually stands for what is good and true. Or you can read this the other way, is that's what's killed her, right? I mean, if if she had just stepped away, if she had said, this whole thing is crazy, like I'm out of here, right? This, this um, not, not just my marriage, not just the family that I married into, not just these brothers, but the religion itself. And there's this long theme of women sacrificing themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Women feeling like the, the thing that God calls them to do is to sacrifice themselves to redeem the men in their lives. Um, and, and at what point does that, um, is that kind of kenosis, uh, you know, in, in this case, it literally led to her death. Yeah, yeah. I was also troubled a little bit, Patrick. I mean, I just, I thought she was just a shining lightning bolt of grace to the people around her by the end. 
Because she's but, also, she's smart, she's talented, she's kind of worldly in, in the good sense of that uh, mm-hmm. term. Yeah. yeah, she's been encouraged to pursue a career, which even in the 80s wasn't necessarily yeah. what young women were being encouraged to do. Yeah, she wanted to be a news do. anchor. Yeah, she yeah. wanted to be a news anchor, and she knows, she's savvy, she knows mm-hmm. how to deal with abusive men yeah. uh, in ways that also save face for herself and for her religion, but she's yeah. not so concerned about preserving face that she can't stand up for what's true and stand up for justice. But, um, yeah, I also had some mixed feelings by the end about that martyrdom. And, and whenever a woman is a martyr, you want to respect that, that true sacrifice. And, and you don't want to say, oh, well, because women have a history of oppression, they can't image Jesus on the cross that somehow that, you know, they're taken out of that, um, that vocation. But, at the same time, yeah, there is that complexity of, of did this need to happen? You know, if, if, if you see her as a shining example of martyrdom, does that still somehow in a small way play into what her killers were wanting to do, which is to make an atonement for what they perceived as her sin? Well, because her sister-in-law, Diana, in, in, in the show, she leaves her husband, Ron, who's one of the murderers, uh, one of the Lafferty brothers who- Oh yeah, and Brenda was killed by her brother's-in-law, by the way. Right. Big spoiler. Yeah. yeah. Uh, And so, but Diana leaves. She takes her kids and leaves this abusive husband relationship and, uh, and religion. Too. She 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 kind of uh, you know steps steps away from from the faith as well, and and she saves her life. She saves her her children's lives. Whereas Brenda, who stays in and, and tries to be the redeeming force, she she doesn't willingly give her life. She clearly does not want to be killed uh, in in the end. But she um, because she stays in the fray, uh, trying to redeem all the people around her, she pays with her life and the life of her fifteen month old infant. Man, I mean, women are such minors canaries. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, in in so many cultural situations, when things go wrong, I'm thinking too of our national in, in the US and in other places too. I was just speaking with someone yesterday from Brazil and with Bolsonaro, and they've got a similar, similar dynamics going yeah. on all over the world. And um the way that Diana and Brenda stand for two kinds of potentially faithful response right. right to and within a situation that's perilous or that's that's uh where you're you're trying to find the right path as a person of faith and live it um courageously and live it with virtue and actually Jeb can also stand as another way of responding to the complexities yeah. of our moment yeah. as a person of faith what do you think of of that no i i, I think that's exactly right and that and it's it shows just how morally and ethically complex all of these decisions are. Yeah. And we see this throughout history, and it still happens today, every single day, that the bad behavior of men puts women in really untenable situations, uh, women and, and other men. Um, but, it, but it puts people in, in, in really difficult situations where they're like seemingly no good options. And, and so I do think the gospel gives us a lot of tools and resources, but, uh, but, but there's, there's not going to be any one right answer, right, in terms of how to, how to respond to abusive behavior, abusive attitudes. In this case, 
you know, the Lafferty men, Ron and Dan, they they were excommunicated by the church. Yeah. So in some ways you could say, oh, well, the church did its job. Uh, but but that didn't stop any of the bad behavior. In some ways, what it did is it actually just took that bad behavior out of the purview of the church so the so the so that the Lafferty's could wash their hands of church leadership and say the church is wrong, right? And so so we have a higher moral authority than the church. And, and then you have and, a police detective bearing yeah. the burden of that unresolved faith crisis. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, but that's so tricky in, in terms of church and state and confidence and, and what, it, what, is the, what is the best way to get somebody to repent of bad behavior, right? Again, I'm, I'm not sure that the show always does it as elegantly as, as I would like, but, but, but the issues that it raises, the, the difficulties, the challenges, the, the tensions, those are all very real. I asked someone one time who was um, discerning ordination, a young woman discerning ordination to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church. And I asked her, I said, you know what, if tomorrow everything that NPR would love to see to make a beautiful world of perfect equality, of beautiful healthcare, great education, excellent teacher pay, climate you know, crisis has ended. If everything NPR might want for the world happened, why would we still need the faith? So going back to this idea of a fundamental faith and fundamentalism having something in it that's radical and true and energizing, right? There's something about pure and a pure faith and pure religion. We want to go back to the basics. There's something uncompromising about following God, about following Jesus Christ particularly, that that can go awry but how do you live? How does a person live with a truly uncompromising, in a healthy way, faith without falling between two stools, either the stool of uncritical allegiance to, you know, the, the winds of wild doctrine or allegiance to your own passions, but also this other stool of detachment from any kind of religious zeal at all? Because by the end, we have a Taba, the the part, Jeb's partner, he starts singing. He's Paiute. Thank you. Yeah. He's Paiute. So he starts singing this Paiute song. He quotes the scripture and then he starts singing a Paiute song. And Jeb says, what's that? And he says, it's a song asking for the return of the buffalo. And I was so moved thinking like, yes, like just wait, like God will restore the buffalo. It's It was so eschatolo- eschatological and beautiful. And then he says, but you know, that doesn't have any power. I just, you know, it's beautiful and we hold on to it and we like how it sounds, but those things don't have real power. Well, it is very posterly. He's like, he's like yeah. I don't believe it, but I still do it because I think there's something to it. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so let's just say in the U.S., how do really people of real serious faith who want to be uncompromising in the best way keep from falling into either like, woo, wild, you know, this is not right. But also into like this kind of like, well, it's beautiful, isn't it? But, you know, does yeah. it really have power to change, to change the human heart, to change a life? Well, I mean, that's the, that's the trillion dollar question, right? I mean, that's that, what, what, what you know, how do we live out our faith in, in a fallen world? And I just, so I, I just, Yesterday I was doing a different show and and we were talking about First uh, Corinthians thirteen and I think that is that is the answer the the kind of radical outpouring of love that Jesus reveals that he models that he exemplifies 
that he that he gifts his his followers through the Holy Spirit, and that 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 is the way um, that the way of love and 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 so it doesn't give us all of the particular answers. I think there's a lot of discernment that has to happen on a daily, weekly, hourly basis uh, in terms of what to do in any given moment. Right. But I I, I think that that what Jesus left his followers um, after his ascension is he left the Holy Spirit as the means of discernment and comfort and guidance and warning. He left uh, the church and he, and he left us with a, a kind of radical uh, example of living a life of selfless love, living for others and living for um, living for something that includes our own well-being, but goes so much beyond it as well. Uh, and, and in some ways, that all sounds quite trite because we've said it a million times, but I, I think that's that's what Jesus gives us. And I think that's what Christians are called to do in the world is, is to try to, to live out their faith in communities of faith that then have power beyond, to, to seek the Holy Spirit, to, to guide them uh, as they, they, they live this, this life of faith, and to do it all with love. And that is a road that you cannot go too far down. No, exactly. I mean, that's, that's what Paul says, right? I mean, this is the one thing that doesn't fail. Mm-hmm. It's the everything else, the tongues fail, prophecy fails, but even faith, right, uh, can fail. It sure does, but, yeah. Uh, but, but love does not fail, um, especially true Christ-like love. That's really hard to do. I wish I knew how to do it. I wish I was better at it, but mm-hmm. I believe it. Yeah, amen. I've been speaking today with Dr. Patrick Mason. We've been talking about Under the Banner of Heaven, which is an FX show available on Hulu. If you've got the stomach for a nice, gritty crime drama, you can check it out. Patrick, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Amber. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. We have got so much cooking on the stove for the next few episodes, including some pre-Lambeth play-by-plays from Andrew Goddard and David Goodhue, conversations on leadership and why it's a good idea to pay attention to Pentecostals. We may also have a bonus episode on general convention, so stay tuned. Until next time, I'm your host, Amber Noel, and it's been good to be with you. Peace. Peace.